On the sheet that you have had for a few weeks and you have today, at the top, we say you should analyze and, and then identify, points one and two. And under an analyzing our characteristic ways of sinning, we suggest you do two things. You go long and you go deep. So I've been trying to make the case in these five weeks prior that we are all different in the way we manifest, express our sin nature. And those differences are in our personality, just the way we're wired, thus the name of the series. But also in the way we're nurtured, the things that we experienced and observed. We have all been schooled as we were brought up particularly in our homes. And so we saw how uh, those in our homes handled various situations. And we find ourselves having that ingrained in us so that we start to do the same kinds of things. Even though everybody vowed, I will not be like my old man or I will not be like my mom. And then you, and many have experienced this, right? Then you find yourself going, oh no, I can't believe. I'm saying the same thing. I'm doing the same, same thing. We're all profoundly affected by not only nature but nurture. So we've been looking at that, discussing that, and I think it's uh, without controversy that both of those major categories affect all of us. So we want to see how that's the case. And I've talked a lot about in the weeks prior how our different personalities can express themselves in the way we sin, including my own. Uh, but then there is also the way we were nurtured. And you want to analyze that. That's what we mean at the top. Analyze the characteristic ways that you find yourself sinning. And to do that, go long and go deep. And I've explained that the go long piece means look into the influences that you have had from your past. And to help you do that, I've recommended that you put together a timeline of, as the paragraph says there, significant emotional events both positive and negative. So I hope some of you have done that and you've just gone back and you've thought about the significant things that have happened in my life that have had an emotional effect on me, positive or negative. And then you want to see how those, positive and negative, have affected you in an ongoing way. You want to, we want to think about even the, the positive things we can use them as sinful people like we all are. We can use them in ways that, that don't honor God. We can make idols out of anything, including the really good things we had when we were kids so that we want to relive that in the lives of our kids. I mean, here's just an example. I know this is a guy and a guy who uh, played sports, still likes sports, but I know that many of us who played sports uh, and who were sure that we could have made it to the pros... If we had just gotten a couple breaks, instead of breaking a couple things, <laughs> we, we could have made it, right? And so Jim Rome, some of you know that, he's a sports commentator, syndicated guy, and Rome has a character that he calls Softball Guy. And Softball Guy is the fellow who believes he could have made it. And he's still living out of that past identity. Now that's a very positive thing for him when he was younger but it's carried over into his adult life, even to his 40s, 50s. He's still angry that he didn't get the breaks that he th thought he should have, that the coaches didn't recognize his talent, all of that. He's softball guy. 
and he's out there on the softball field and he's the dude that's angry. And if, and if, it's, and if it's one of those that has alcohol, look out. I say one of those, you know, there are, there are, there are Christian softball leagues too. Do you see that? <laughs> we, had, we had a Christian, we were in a Christian softball league. And I told the guys when we started years ago, I said, I've seen, I've been in Christian softball leagues. And they're never Christian. You got softball guy out there without the alcohol. So if this one degenerates into something other than Christian, we're out of here. We're not doing this. And guess what happened? That's exactly what happened. We had to shut the thing down. And so there's just... People enjoyed that when they were younger. They have this positive experience, but they allow that to dominate them in some way, and it translates into something like that. Or, I just remember we used to go to the lake, and when we went to the lake when I was a kid, that was the greatest thing. I mentioned this last week, and so I want to go to the lake every single weekend, and so for the entire summer, me nor my children are ever in church because the lake is that important. And I would just suggest to you, you probably want to rethink that priority. Go to the lake, just don't go every week. Don't make it that, that important. Those are positive things that we can use, in the, I think, in the wrong way. But then, of course, there's all the negative things and the experiences that we've had emotionally that way and how those can carry on. So go long, think about those, and then B, go deep. Go deep means to now take those events and then analyze them by asking these questions, and I'm going to supplement these questions with a few more. In fact, if, you, if you've got a pen you care to jot it down, you could uh, jot down the acronym STORY, but instead of a Y at the end, it's two E's. So S-T-O-R-E-E, S-T-O-R-E-E. And each of those six letters uh, stands for something that I'll, I'll describe related to the four questions that are at the bottom and going deep. So you, you find your, yourself uh, in your life not doing what God has described in Scripture in the way you've prioritized your life and the way you live your life. It may be in obvious things that are causing you difficulty in your relationships. It may be just in something like I said, you know, I've never really, I'm a Christian, but I've never really gotten integrated into the life of the church and serving God with my gifts and abilities, and that's because I've taken all these other things and made them priority over it. So you recognize the reason you're doing an exercise like this, that something is amiss. Something is amiss in my relationships. Something is amiss in my own inner recesses of my heart. Something's amiss in the way that I have structured my life as I learn more about Christ, His church, what our mission is, and, and so on. And so you want to analyze why that's the case. Why have I prioritized the things that I, that I have? Why am I affected by my nature and nurture the way I am? And what changes do I need to make? That's what we mean by going deep. And to go deep, you have these four questions. These are questions that I ask people, by the way, when they come for counsel. I've got a sheet, and my sheet has these four questions on it. And then it's got a bunch of space in between each one. And then I say, tell me what's going on. 
That's the first question. And so they tell me from their perspective, here's my problem. And then they start to describe the, the problem, the, the situation you see there in parentheses. So you've got the, um, you've got the situation as they describe it, and that corresponds to two of the letters in the STORY acronym. Uh, the S in story is indeed for that situation. But then the O is for others. So as I describe the situation, one of the things that I want to know is, yes, what is the situation? What's going on? But I also want to know who else is involved, if others are involved. And if others are involved, I want to know how you see the situation with that person. So what is the what is, what is going on? What's the situation? And then secondly, how do you respond? And that's the R in the STORY acronym. What do you do in response to what's going on? So do you get angry? Do you get depressed? Are you frustrated? Do you, are you debilitated? I mean, is it that bad? Like, I, it's, it's so bad for me. It so grips me, whatever it is, that I can't get out of bed. I can't function. How do, how do you respond? But then thirdly, what do you think about what's going on? And that's the T in the story acronym. Your thoughts. So what do you think about what's going on? What do you think about yourself? Do you think that you have been wronged? Do you think that you deserve better than what you've got? If there are other people involved, what do you think about those other people? Oh, that could take a long time. So what, what, do I, what do I think about those, those other people and their role in where I am and what's going on with me? What do you think should have happened? What do you think they should have done for you if someone else is involved? And then the last one, what do you want out of what's going on? That's your desires, your motivations. your desires and your motivations. And those are the, both of the E's. And the E's stand for uh, emotion and just events. Emotion and, and events. What do, I, what do I want? What kind of emotions do I have going on? And what kind of events do I want to see transpire? So what do I want out of what's going on? Now, notice that the way this goes is you start outward and you move inward. You guys see that? So that with my four questions here that I stole from... Paul Tripp's book uh, called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, and it's about how to be a helper to other people. And so they have this in there. 
but then supplementing that with the story uh, idea, but amounting to much the same thing. They go from the outside to the inside. Your situation, what's going on on the outside, how you see it. There's how you respond to it. So there's the dynamic of what's happening in your life, in your heart, internally, perhaps externally, if it involves another person or persons. But then we move from the external to the internal. What are you thinking? And then what is it that you desire? So we go from the outside to the inside. Now, as we go from the outside to the the inside, we want to, in point number two, identify what's happening on the inside. So you analyze, but then identify what's happening with my heart here, such that I have these emotions, such that uh, I desire these particular outcomes, these particular events to occur. Now, I want you to, to notice something here, please. That so far in all of this, we are dealing with suffering. Under point number one, we're dealing with suffering. Suffering from the past and suffering in the present. Because in a fallen world, there are two kinds of expressions of sin, two. There's suffering and there's personal sin. And all of us experience both of them. So in a fallen world, we all sin ourselves. But in a fallen world, we also all feel the effects of other people's sin. Or just the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. Disease, cancer, loss of job, that kind of stuff. That's suffering. Now, so far, under analyzing, I've been talking about, I've been talking about suffering. But there's, and, and suffering from the past, and there's suffering in the present that all of us have. But what about the personal sin piece? Well, please understand that in our reaction to suffering, we very often sin. Now, I can sin, you can sin without any provocation. It doesn't have to come in reaction to suffering. I know that and you know that. We're all perfectly capable of sinning without any impetus, without any stimulus. We come wired to sin. We are by nature sinners, as we talked about in the first hour. And that being the case, when I'm suffering... Even though the suffering is not sin, it's stuff that's been done to me or just because I live in the effects of a sin-cursed world, nevertheless, I need to think about whether or not I have sinned in response to the suffering. So point one is dealing with, with suffering. Past suffering. And that's why I ask you to do the timeline. And with regard to that past suffering, it's important for you to deal with the past. Hear this. Because if you don't deal with the past, your past will deal with you. If you don't deal with it, it'll deal with you. And you'll carry it around. And you will sin in response to the suffering of your past. 
The suffering from your past is not your fault. But we all have our response to what's happened to us. So think of the word responsibility. Think of it as the combination of two words. The ability to respond. Responsibility. I have, you have the responsibility to react to what happens. And I can react sinfully to what happens. I can actually make what happens worse by reacting sinfully. So I'm responsible. I have the responsibility to use the ability that God has given us to respond in, in better ways. So as you look into the past suffering, you've got to deal with it, otherwise it's going to deal with you. And one of the issues that many, many people are plagued with as they think about their past suffering is this. Where was God? And even if you haven't articulated that question, God is an ever-present reality in the lives of creatures, as we talked about from Psalm 14. God is, and everybody knows it. But people sometimes want to put God on the shelf. We don't want to think about God. But in the recesses of your heart and mind, if you've suffered in the past, one of the issues you're having to deal with is where was God? What do you think about? How has this affected your view of God? Are you angry at God? So under point one, we're dealing with suffering, suffering from the past, but also suffering in the present. And the question arises, where is God in the present? And we always, because we were made quorum deo, to use a Latin term, in the presence of God, we were all made as image bearers to live out our lives in the presence of God of God, before the face of God. And so that's why the God question is always paramount. Where was God? Where is God? My father died when I was 11. That made life di difficult for us. I had two older brothers. My oldest brother was an alcoholic at age 19. His, he's age 19. There was no man in the house to stop him from terrorizing our house. So our house was terrorized for several years by an angry, drunk person. And I experienced that. And there's no man around, and there was a man around, and now there's not. Where was God in this? What's God doing in this? It's easy to respond to something like that in anger and allow that to affect you for years to come, right? Or whatever's happening in, in your present. Where is God? But we always, always have to deal with, with God. And I've had to deal with my past in order to not allow the past to deal with me. Just like the rest of you have to. Now point two, in identifying our underlying heart issues, this now is dealing with sin. So part one is dealing with suffering, past and present. But point two, identifying our heart issues, is now dealing with sin, which we may do in reaction to the suffering. 
So take a look at that bottom part then of your page and then on, as well on the back page. If you haven't had an opportunity to do this, I encourage you to do it. And I, I think it's self-explanatory in the middle of the front side of the page. It tells you what to do. In the middle there it says don't overanalyze yourself. So some of you, your, one of your characteristic ways of sinning is you want to be, you want to appear to be better than you are in front of people. You want to appear to be better than you are in front of people. So when you do a thing like this, you're afraid you're going to get the wrong answer. Okay? Smokey, is that what you were doing? You were afraid you were going to get the wrong answer? Okay. And you're telling me that Bob got the wrong answer. Okay, see? These guys are pointing fingers at each other. I'm telling you that I have seen people do this over and over again. When you do something like this and they're like afraid to answer the question because they want to make sure they get the right... Well, there isn't a right answer. Don't overanalyze. But part of the reason you're overanalyzing is because you don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to appear to have gotten it wrong. Somebody's going to find out, is Pastor going to call me out? Is Smokey the only one he's going to call out? You never know. So don't overanalyze. And then do it. And then having done it, you see on the back side of the page, it says to add up your score for these five things. And then the idea, the bottom line, is the bottom half of that page. Match your highest score with the description below. And here it identifies five common idols of the heart. And I'd like to take some time to, for us to see these. So if when you get done with this, your highest score is A, is under A, up at the top, toward the top there, then this one's for you. You fear the possibility of anything bad happening, health problems, loss of financial security, a broken relationship, having your faults and weaknesses exposed, and therefore you often fear the unknown. Your decisions are often based on what will maintain the status quo and keep you safe. When things begin going bad, you feel anxious and depressed, and you may panic, shut down, or run away. You dislike being singled out. I apologize, Smokey. Actually, Smokey's one of the few people that I know can handle it. And by the way, she can dish it out too. <laughs> so, with all of that, the idol that may rule your heart is a desire for security. So let me stop there for a minute and you go, how is a desire for security an idol? How is a desire for security a bad thing? What's sinful about wanting to be secure? So let me remind you, biblically, what idols are. We often think of idols as things that you fashion out of wood or stone and you bow down before them. That's certainly a type of idol. But the Bible speaks of idols of the heart. And an idol of the heart is anything that takes priority over the true and living God. 
So we can manufacture idols out of literally anything or anyone. So we have to broaden, the Bible broadens our understanding of idolatry and what constitutes it. John Calvin, I'm paraphrasing him here, but John Calvin said, idolatry is often found in wanting good things too much. Idolatry is often found in wanting good things, but wanting those good things too much. How do I know if I want them too much? When I'm willing to sin, either to get them or sin in their absence. This thing has become an idol that I've got to have. So I'm willing to sin to obtain it, or I'm going to sin if I'm unable to attain it. So you know you want it too much when you're willing to sin to get it or sin in its absence. Security can be that same thing. My idol is security, and I want, it, I want it too much, and I want it in particular forms. Now, as I go through each of these, I want you to ask that question that I mentioned before. Where's God? Where's God in the ways that you think about security? What role does God play in your heart, in your mind, as you think about what would make you secure? And you will find with all of these idols, by definition, since they're idolatrous, they're replacing God. And therefore, you've got an inadequate view of God. And you've replaced it with this. B, you fear being alone or excluded. You wrestle with feelings of jealousy in your relationships. You can quickly feel offended by what others do or say. You make decisions based on what will please others and make them like you. You may avoid conflict or avoid others for fear they will reject or judge you. The idol that may rule your heart is a need for acceptance or belonging. You're finding your well-being not in Christ but in other people. And that now is, is managing your life. It's managing your emotions. It's managing your thoughts. C, you, stre- you, you fear stress and dislike anything that requires too much work, responsibility, or high expectations. You avoid anything that disrupts your plans and will become angry when your plans are interfered with. You avoid having to make sacrifices. You make decisions based on what feels good. The idol that may rule your heart is a desire for, for comfort. So the difference between B and C is what uh, one counselor has called... Uh, B is the kind of person who wants everybody to like them, wants to be accepted. They're a people pleaser. And so he calls that person a mini, M-I-N-I, small, mini Messiah. Many people, M-A-N-Y, think that they need to be mini small messiahs. And they, have to do every, and they have to do everything, and they have to be known as the people who do everything. The opposite of that at is C. The same counselor calls these people C, the comfort people, God's vacationer. And I've known both kinds of people. The people who are the fastest right hand in the West, meaning every time you ask to, for somebody to volunteer, they overcommit. 
because of this idolatrous thing. But then you got other people who you have to drag along. Some people you have to restrain, other people you have to drag. Many messiahs versus vacationers. D, you have the tendency to be task-oriented and will avoid people if they prevent you from completing a task. You enjoy recognition, become defensive at criticism. You feel significant by what you achieve. You may fear failure or imperfection. What may rule your heart is the drive for achievement, success, or significance. And you see in the absence of all of these that your life can crumble. If these are idols, then if I don't have what I define as security, if I don't get that acceptance, if I don't have that comfort, if I don't achieve the success as I've laid it out in my mind, my life can, my life can crumble. That's what idols do. And then lastly, you fear not being in control. You're driven by the chance to win or to have a position of power or responsibility. You become angry or anxious when others try to control you. You're willing to be manipulative to get what you want. You strongly dislike being wrong or being asked to back down. Your idol may be power or control. And so those are just examples, and I encourage you, if you haven't, to go through that so that you can go deep into what is it that's controlling your heart with these. Now, with all of that, into our sixth week, why bother? I mean, I don't know when the last time you were in church in a class and the pastor said, you know what, you really need to dig deep into your heart. Here's a tool to help you figure out what's going on. And it might be painful as you go back and do that timeline in your, in your past, especially those negative emotional events. And now here, let's go through a test like this to try to see what kinds of things other than Christ are ruling my heart. Why bother with all that? Because after all, isn't, isn't the Christian life all about the, the great by and by? One of these days we're going to meet on the on the future shore together. And so when we come together at church, shouldn't we just sing about that? And shouldn't you, pastor, just assure us that that's what's going to happen in the future, that we're all going to heaven? Now, that's all part of the Christian life, the, the hope of the future, to be sure. And that does properly inspire what we do in the present. But hear this. The Bible teaches something called eternal security. Meaning, if you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith and trust in Him, if He is your Savior and your Lord, then you will be His eternally. You're eternally secure. You can't lose your salvation. You're going to heaven. How do I know this? A bunch of ways. Here's one. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, let me just stop there. Whenever Jesus says truly, truly, listen up, okay? I mean, he does, that's, that's, that's the Greek word, amen, amen, like we get amen from it. He's saying, listen up, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, John 5, 24, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life, has in the present eternal life and shall not come into condemnation. So you presently have eternal life, and in the future you shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life, Jesus says. 
So you got something that lasts forever now. You've got eternal life now. That's why we believe in eternal security. You can't lose it. You're going to heaven if you belong to Jesus right now. And many people think that's the only question that needs to be answered in this life is, are you going to heaven? I mean, that's hugely important. But here's the thing I can't get over. You see, the Bible teaches eternal security. That question, therefore, has already been answered for you. So why are you still here? If the only thing, the only question that matters is, where am I going to spend eternity? We already know that. So beam me up. Let's get it over with. You see, the fact of eternal security and the fact that we're still here says to me God's not done with us. He's still got stuff for us to do. So why bother? Because contrary to what many of us think, the only question that matters is not where are you going to spend eternity, but rather, how are you going to represent Jesus in the meantime? And so, and so that's why we bother. And so your personal mission between now and when the Lord calls you home or the Lord returns, your personal mission and my personal mission is to show the worth the value of God to the world. And you see, I can't show the worth of God to the world if I'm controlled by God replacements, by idols, like security and acceptance and comfort and power and achievement. The reason you want to topple those idols is because you want to show to the world the worth, the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why God said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. I'm not there. You're not there. I get that. This side of heaven, we won't be. But sanctification, the Bible teaches something called progressive sanctification, and that is us gradually growing in an understanding of ourselves, an understanding of God, so that God becomes greater, we become less, and we topple these idols of the heart. And in a fallen world, that worth, that value of God, is often displayed in the crucible of suffering of difficulty. You're not going to, this side of heaven, guys and gals, nobody gets out of this world unscathed. Nobody. Everybody gets nicked and tackled and sometimes almost overwhelmed by suffering. This side of heaven. But God has designed in the crucible of that suffering that you will show His value and His worth. And I just remind you that the story of Job, you guys remember the story of Job? I know a lot of you, I know some of you have gone through some horrendous suffering. I think I can, I know I can say without fear of contradiction, <laughs> ain't nobody here suffered like Job. 
And yet, do you remember what the contest was between God and Satan? Satan said, look, he only follows you when things are good. And God said, you, I'm paraphrasing, God said, you don't know Job. In fact, do you remember who brought up Job in the whole conversation? God did. Satan comes, chapter 1 of Job, to present himself before God. Just think about that. Satan has to present himself before Almighty God. He can't do anything God doesn't let him do. And then God says, have you considered my servant Job? And I think I said to you guys a few weeks ago, you know, it'd be okay with me if God would leave me out of that conversation. <laughs> have you considered Ken? But God knew Job. God knew Job's heart. God knew Job's priority of God in that heart. And God chose Job to go through this because he knew what Job would do. And he's showing to God is Satan and he's showing to the world because that's been memorialized for us for at least 3,500 years. Showing to the world that there are people who love God more than anything in this world. That's why we bother. And that's why we bother in the midst of whatever it is that God allows to come our way. You see, friends, we don't love God in spite of suffering. We love God, we honor God, we show His worth, we show His value in the midst of the suffering of a fallen world. And so that's why you do this. That's why I urge you to do this. That's why I've taken six weeks to try to help you to, to do this. And it's why our church wants to start a counseling center. Because we want to sit down with lots of people and go through the four questions, go long, go deep, and cause those people to see the idols that they have made in their life and replace those with Jesus Christ on the pedestal of their heart. All right. Now, my idol, one of my idols, is bragging about finishing on time. And you guys know that a lot of times I'll say, hey, take a look, it's dead on noon. Well, it's dead on 12.03. So let's pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for these weeks that we've been able to have together to think about how you have wired us, about how in your sovereign providence you have allowed us to go through things, good things, difficult things. And Lord, because we're in a fallen world and these kinds of difficult things happen to all of us, and because we are fallen people, we have the propensity to react to them in, in sinful ways and then to make the difficulty worse. So help me to realize that. Help my friends here to, to realize that. And help us to see, Lord, that you have purpose in all you do and in all you allow. And that that purpose is ultimately for your people to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. To show to an onlooking world that you are worth it. That you are more valuable than our comfort. More valuable than any of the idols that we can enthrone in our hearts. So help us then to take this seriously, identify and dethrone those idols in our hearts. May we be a people that show that to people.
And as a result, may people see that there are people who are living for something rather than just the short term and rather than just comfort and rather than and beyond just the material things of this world and living for the God that we profess. Help us to do that this afternoon. Help us to do that this week. Grant us safety, we ask you. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.